unleash the power within. That is the title of Tony Robbins' conferences that used to be running nearly year-round all across the country. With a, had a, a very basic message to it. You have everything you need right inside of you. At one point he said, we can exchange, we can change our lives, we can, we can do, have, and be exactly what we wish, because the power is inside you. Or another quote of his, using the power of decision gives you the capacity to get past any excuse to change any and every part of your life in an instant. Well, I don't know if that advice is working out so well for Tony Robbins right now. I don't see a lot of conferences hosted by him at this moment. I think we're living at a time where it's plainly obvious that we don't have the strength within us to change our circumstances in an instant. No, there are things far bigger and stronger than us out there, things that set us on edge. I think we resonate much more with the type of foxhole prayer written down by an anonymous soldier during World War II. He says, stay with me, God. The night is dark. The night is cold, my little spark. Of courage dims, the night is long. Be with me, God, and make me strong. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, we're living at a time when it's more obvious than ever that we are not strong enough in ourselves to solve all the problems, that all our intellect and money and might is not enough to stop this global pandemic. At a time like this, it's more obvious than ever. We need strength from somewhere else, from someone else. And it's at this point that we can begin to ask the questions that might actually make us find something unexpected in our suffering. Might actually help us to find strength and joy from God himself. We're in the midst of a series through the book of Habakkuk where big questions are being asked by a man in the midst of terrible suffering. Last week we saw Habakkuk actually asked God two questions. He asked him, what in the world are you doing, God? How could you possibly let evil go on like this? And strangely enough, God gave him an answer. His answer is just wait for it. I'm about to do something you would never expect. Something that your mind can't wrap itself fully around. I'm going to punish your nation using the Babylonians. Well, well, that only set off more questions. How in the world could a good God use evil, even cruel people like the Babylonians to punish his special people? That was the second set of questions that were asked and the second answer God gave. You gotta trust me, Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. You'll never understand all of it. Don't worry. At the end of it all, I will settle all the accounts. No one will get off easy. And yet you will have to trust me on the reasons and the seasons behind my timing. Two really significant questions. What is God doing? And there's another question, even more fundamental, that we have to wrestle with in the midst of suffering. The question is, who is God? 
Who is God? Who is the God that allows this sort of suffering, even ordains this sort of suffering? And how is there any strength to be found from him on a day like today? Well, that's what we'll turn our attention to this morning. This question of who is God? Answered by a look at his character. Two aspects of his character. And then a response of worship from this prophet in the midst of suffering. We'll see it in three sections. First, who is God? He's the present and powerful judge of us all. We'll see that in verses 1 through 15. Who is God? He's the present and powerful judge of us all. Then second, we'll see just as importantly, who is God? He is the present and powerful savior of his people in verse 13. He's not just the judge, he's also the savior of his people. And then finally, we'll see our response to this. Who is God? He is our joy and our strength in suffering. We'll see that in verses 16 through 19. He is our joy and our strength in suffering. In all this, brothers and sisters, we will see that as we understand who our God is, then we can find a strange sort of strength even in the midst of our suffering. We can even have joy. Let's begin in verses 1 through 15. Who is God? He is the present and powerful judge of all. Now, chapters 1 and 2 had this back and forth between God and Habakkuk. Chapter 3 is Habakkuk writing a hymn to God. This is poetry that is meant to be sung. Now this hymn that he writes has some discrete portions to it. Verses 1 through 15 are Habakkuk reflecting on who God is. And then 16 through 19 are him responding with worship and even faith. In 1 through 15, undoubtedly, the most dominant theme is the theme of God's powerful presence in judgment. If you were just counting verses, by far, this is the most prominent theme. Notice even at the beginning in verse 2, you get a hint that this is where it's going. Verse 2 acts like a little bit of a summary statement. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. What we see here is a man who continues to pray, knowing the terrible judgment that is about to come. And yet, even as he does so, he remembers the character of his God to both judge and to save. First, we'll turn our attention to the images that Habakkuk uses to describe God's judgment. In verses 3 through 6, he, it's as if he sees a vision of God's arrival on this earth, and frankly, it is terrifying. In 3 and 4, he, we see God's glorious appearance. God came from two places, from Taman and from Mount Paran. Those are the areas the Israelites moved through on their exodus out of Egypt on their way to Sinai. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. 
This is an overwhelming display of God's glory. This is a majestic, big God that is arriving. But notice that God came. That God arrived. All of this is God showing up where he once was not. Habakkuk sees back to a time, he's likely thinking back to the Exodus, when God had seemed so, so far away from his people. And yet when he showed up to rescue his people through the pillar of cloud and the judgments upon the Egyptians and led his people safely to Mount Sinai, all those same descriptions are there for God. Even the terrible ones, like in verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Back in Exodus, God said that he was the one that would send the plagues and the pestilence upon the Egyptians. And you, you saw that happen with the judgments that he sent. When the, his people disobeyed, it was God that sent them plagues and pestilence as judgment. And here Habakkuk sees, yes, God is even in charge of viruses and bacteria and all the things that cause misery in humanity. Now, at this point, we just need to stop and pause and say that has implications for how we live in this moment, this COVID-19 moment. Right here in this passage, we see that God sovereignly controls plagues. He sovereignly controls colds and yes, even big viruses like COVID-19 and all the misery it wrecks. How is it that we are to think of that? Does that mean that we should think of this pandemic as God's judgment on the world? Well, that's a, a big theological question to answer. I will give you a, a short summary answer from one passage. Jesus himself informs us how we're to think of moments like this. The answer is both yes and no. No, we don't know for sure a specific sin that God is judging in this moment, although there is no shortage of them in this world that he could choose from. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, Luke 13, 1 through 5, we'll see Jesus warns us implicitly about ascribing judgments and calamities to specific sins when God has not himself revealed it. Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others that lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now Jesus takes two scenarios during his day that people understood as in some sense misfortune or judgment from God. One was this evil done by Herod, uh, by Pilate. He, he murdered some people and he mixed their blood with the sacrifices in the temple. Some people might think that happened because those people were especially bad sinners, that they got what they had coming and this was God's judgment to them. 
But you notice what Jesus said? He says, no, you're not supposed to make that connection. But there is a connection you are supposed to make. That it's a warning to you that you are supposed to repent or you too will perish. It does the same thing with a, a seemingly random act. A tower falls over. At this point, a bunch of people get squashed by it, but there's no one that's particularly to blame. And yet, we are not supposed to draw the conclusion that the people destroyed by this tower are somehow more under judgment than all the rest of us. No, again, the lesson we're supposed to draw is when we see calamities, when we see disasters, when we see, yes, plagues, that they are reminders to all of us to repent. That one day this world that we live in will end and our sins will be punished. And if we do not repent of our sins, then we will find ourselves under the very judgment of God. So is COVID-19 a judgment from God on this world? Well, in one sense, yes. The world itself is under God's judgment. That is certainly true. God certainly has reasons for this outbreak. And included among them most likely is judgment of some sort. And yet, and yet we don't have perfect insight. We don't know God's perfect plan. And so while we can trust that God is, will judge rightly, we should be very slow. Very slow to ascribe specific sins to this outbreak as if we have the mind of God in that way. Well, continuing back in chapter 3, Habakkuk sees this vision of God's arrival, his overwhelming powerful presence. And then in verse 6, you see all of this, all of this is part of his judgment. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. And the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. What Habakkuk sees is all of this arriving uh, the groaning of the creation itself as it trembles at God's arrival is all part of his judgment. God stands and measures the earth. You can imagine him weighing humanity itself. We see that the creation itself shudders at this action and yet it is particular, in particular people that are under his judgment. And that's what verse 7 is about. Kushan and Midian are nations, peoples. God arrives, and he does so to bring judgment. Well, the vision continues, and in verses 8 through 15, it shifts. No longer is it focusing on God's arrival. Now it's focusing on God making war. There's all of this imagery in here of military matters. You, you see arrows and spears. In verses 8 through 9, you see that the, the, his wrath comes against the very rivers and the waters. Now, that doesn't make much sense. What's God doing attacking water? Well, well, back in that day, many people associated rival deities to having power over the rivers and the seas. Here we see God going to war with the very strength of his enemies, going right into the teeth of their defense. And what happens? Well, he overwhelms them with his might. 
Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. These are all images of God the warrior destroying his enemies so much so that the very earth itself is quaking and shaking at his might. Now, again, if you have any question, what is in view here? What is the main target of this? Verse 12 clears it up. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. God is bringing judgment to this world. Not just for a localized place. Not just upon creation. The whole of this world, including all the people within it. God going to war with his enemies. And we see here a powerful God. One who will not be overcome by anyone. Habakkuk sees this vision of God. And strangely, this powerful presence of God to judge is going to give way to something that will actually bring comfort to his heart. But before we do that, friends, we need to stop. And we need to let our own souls tremble a bit at the holy fear that we should have in the face of a holy and just and powerful God that judges. Now, brothers and sisters, I know you are cut off from so many of your regular rhythms in your church life. You can't get it, together with your small group in person that you like if you have an accountability partner you probably haven't been able to meet together in quite a while when there is disruption to rhythms very often it's easy to let things slide would you remember this morning that you serve a holy god a god of judgment and justice would you remember how seriously he takes the holiness of his people would you even allow this plague of COVID-19 to remind us, yes, as believers, to repent, to have a holy sort of fear of our God, to urge ourselves toward righteousness? Now, if you're tuning in this morning and you're not a Christian, I understand that this idea that God would be angry at people and actually punish people in his anger might seem to be very much at odds with what most people think about God. Most people today think of God, if they think about him at all, as someone there to do his good, someone that is infinitely tolerable, constantly forgiving, as if God really doesn't care what we do in this earth as long as we follow our hearts, as long as we attain our highest level of ourselves. But that view of God is totally in contradiction with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is revealed as someone who has created all of us and told us what he expects of each of us. He expects us to worship him. He expects us to live a life that is holy like him, free from sin. And every time we sin, we actually, in a small way, we rebel against this God that created us. Have you thought about the fact that one day, friend, you will have to meet this God? That one day you will have to give an account for the way you've lived your life? If God were to replay all the events of your life like a video, I wonder, are there any things that you would be ashamed of? Is there anything you wish he wouldn't see? 
Friend, have you asked yourself, what does God think of the way I've lived my life? How could you even know for sure if, if he would be pleased with you? Well, those questions are the very reason why we Christians find the thing we call the good news of the gospel of Jesus to be such good news. Because we understand that none of our lives lived up to God's standards. According to the Bible, not one of us is righteous. We all already are guilty before this God and deserve his wrath. But this same God has remembered us in the midst of his wrath. That he has shown mercy by sending his son to receive our punishment. His son's name was Jesus. Each Easter, we remember the fact that Jesus... He gave his life as a substitute for sinners. He gave his perfect life in exchange for rebellious lives like ours. He gave up his very blood so that we could be forgiven. Christians celebrate the cross where Jesus hung and died because we understand that to be the only way that anyone could ever stand before God on the day of judgment and come out as his friend. So friend, if you're tuning in this morning and you, maybe you're wondering about some of those questions, I, I invite you, I invite you to come and meet Jesus. You have to repent of your sin. You have to admit that you are a rebel against God's will. You have to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. But friend, if you do, you will find unlimited forgiveness. No matter how bad your life has been or no matter how many sins you've committed, maybe even ones you're not aware of. Jesus is fully capable of forgiving them if you'll put your faith in him. We know that because our God is not just a God of judgment. He's also a God of salvation. And that's where Habakkuk turns in verse 13. Who is God? He is the present and powerful judge of us all. That is certainly true. But also we must know that he is the present and powerful savior of his people. Look in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You remember how this whole hymn started off? Habakkuk asking God, in wrath, remember mercy. Why would he pray something like that? Well, it's because this is the pattern of the God that Habakkuk prays to throughout all of history as recorded in the scriptures. He is a God, yes, that brings judgment, but who saves his people through that very judgment. If you know your Bible, you'll know this theme well. Remember Lot and his daughters as they escape Sodom and Gomorrah? Judgment falls from fire coming down from heaven, and yet Lot and his daughters, they are saved through it. Or what about Noah and his family? As the whole world comes under the judgment of God through the flood, Noah and his family are safe and secure inside the ark. They are saved through God's judgment. Or what about Joseph and his brothers, his good-for-nothing brothers? God uses even their evil intention to, to murder him. He uses it to save his family and so many other people through the famine that was coming. God saves them even as he brings judgment. What about the Israelite nation? The plagues that rained down upon the Egyptians wave after wave until 
God delivered his people through the Red Sea and then brought judgment upon the armies of Pharaoh. And in doing, he saved his people. God is a God, yes, of judgment, but of saving his people through that judgment. Habakkuk knows this. He knows that God's judgment is coming for the good of his people somehow, some way, even if he can't quite imagine it. And he worships God for it. And yet, brothers and sisters, as much as Habakkuk was able to ascertain at that moment, notice how little he knows compared to us. He worshiped a God who was powerful and present, who arrived to judge and somehow, some way would save his people through it. But consider what we, as New Testament Christians, know of this same God. We know of the arrival of another one, don't we? We know of the arrival of an anointed one. A king that came riding on a donkey on a Sunday we call Palm Sunday as the crowds cried out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Salvation is here. We know of this one who would come and bear the very judgment of God in himself. Who would crush the head of God's enemies but would do so not with a sword or a spear. But he would do it by dying on a cross, giving up his very life for God's people. And in all of this, he would himself absorb the wrath of God so that we would be saved through the very judgment of God. Brothers and sisters, how much more do we have reason to have faith? To trust the God that sends plague and pestilence, that raises up nations and drops them down. How much more do we have reason to trust this God? Because he is powerful presence and judgment led to our eternal salvation. Do you see how knowing God knowing his character, knowing what he has done. You see how that begins to unlock in your heart a strange sort of strength, even a joy. What happens when you know that the God who is in control of all things, that he is for you and he'll supply everything that you need? Well, that's what brings us to our final section the response of the heart that has seen this vision of God, the present and powerful God, both to judge and to save. What happens when your heart grabs hold of those truths? What we see in verses 16 through 19, you find him to be your joy and your strength. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Habakkuk has come to terms with the fact that he will go through this time of suffering. The Babylonians will come. They will conquer Judah. They will take him and everyone he holds dear off into exile. And yet his heart has also come to terms with something else. The powerful presence of his God to judge and to save. Verses 17 through 19 are some of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. 
They are a hymn of trust and devotion that are sweet, sweet to the soul. William Cooper wrote a hymn reflecting on these truths within it. Remember, William Cooper was a man of much suffering and sorrow in his day. He dealt with the deep darkness of depression basically his whole life. But in the clearer moments where the fog lifted, he remembered much of the goodness of God and he used the overflow of his heart to edify. Listen to these words. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted fruit should bear. Though all the fields should be wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice for a while in him confiding. I cannot but rejoice. Now Habakkuk is not a man that is pretending that things are about to get easy. He's not a man looking inside thinking he could change his circumstances just with positive thinking or unleashing the strength within. No, this is a man that knows suffering is coming and he knows in the midst of his suffering he will find strength from his God. Verse 17, he lifts out, lists out the many reasons he has to despair there's no figs on the tree. There's no fruit on the vines. There's no olive crop. There's no field in the foods. There's no sheep. There's no goats. There's no food. There's no wealth. There's no security. There is, frankly, no hope if you live back then. And yet, yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Don't misread that, friends. This is not a man coldly resigning himself to just grin and bear it, to pretend things are good when they're not. No, this is someone who knows true security and strength only come from God. He will not just bear this, he will find joy in it. Why? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. When you know that God is your salvation, that he is your security, friend, it allows you to suffer and to find joy and strength in the midst of it. The stock market crashing can't take this sort of joy from you. Your health suddenly crashing can't take this joy from you. You being lonely you having no way to spend your time, you not knowing how long this will go on, it can't take this sort of joy from you because your joy, it never came from any of the things in your life except God himself. God is the joy of our salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord and no one else. Not only is there joy to be found, there is strength to be found. You see that in verse 19? God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Catch that image of a sure-footed deer prancing along on the precarious hilltops. 
Deers never seem to be afraid as they walk along that they're going to stumble or a rock will give way. They, they, they're so sure-footed. And that's the image of someone finding their security in the God of judgment and salvation that Habakkuk worships. They are so secure, they find strength in the midst of their suffering. Brothers and sisters, don't you know this to be the case? Have you not found that at your moments of greatest affliction, there is a source of joy and strength far deeper than you ever imagined possible? Even this week, I was on the phone with one of you. You were telling me about a really, really hard week. Anxiety, depression, health concerns, frankly, many reasons to despair. And yet, in the midst of this hard affliction and trial, a joy and a strength from God. Don't you know this to be the case when you're least sure how things will turn out in your life? when you are in a foxhole kind of moment. Don't you find your security in the God of your salvation all the sweeter? See, we're at a moment where, as the performing artist Lecrae put it, it's not that we have lost control. We have just lost the illusion of our control. God was always sovereign over our whole lives. He has always been the only source of our security. And yet right now we can't play that pretend game that we've got this on our own. No, we have to turn our attention to the God of our salvation. I remember sitting with a Christian man who had for decades been working his fingers to the bone to get this business of his to a profitable place. He worked so hard at it. He poured his life and energy into it. And, and then one day, the whole thing just collapsed on him. It all, it all went away. Now, he was sad. That was a hard, hard thing to see happen. And yet, months later, he, I sat across the table from him, and he described for me how he found joy in that season that he never knew possible before. Brothers and sisters, don't think, don't think that this season of COVID-19 and being shut in your house and being uncertain of the future, don't think that this is God having forgotten you. Don't think that this is God doing you some wrong. Would you remember that joy and strength are found in the midst of suffering? Because our God is both the God of judgment and the God of salvation. Maybe this week, parents, you need to ask yourself, are your kids, are they seeing a, a parent that has this indestructible joy in their lives? Are they seeing a parent who feels as if they have strength from God so secure that they can't possibly stumble? Is that what they see? Or do they see a parent filled with anxiety? A parent that's short-tempered? A parent that's allowing their insecurities to project even on their children? Maybe you're worried about work. Maybe you're justifiably worried about work. Will I have a job next week? Will I find unemployment even available should I apply for it? 
How long do I have to figure out how to make ends meet like this? We have all sorts of questions like this. How would it witness to those who knew you if you went through this time of uncertainty with joy? How would it witness to them if you had almost like a strength welling up within you that couldn't possibly come from yourself? This is an opportunity for all of us to show, uh, show the watching world that our God is a God that saves his people through affliction. Now, I don't know what God is doing through this, but I have seen little glimpses. As I've had opportunity to call around and talk to different, one, uh, different uh, uh, members of our church, it's been amazing for me to get windows into what God is doing. It seems to me that God is opening up avenues into people's hearts that were not open even just a few weeks ago. I've heard from people that were not, not able to have conversations about Jesus for decades. That suddenly people are hungry for it. Brothers and sisters, would we use this moment, the strength that the Lord provides, would we use it not in fear, but in faith to be servants of the Lord, joyful, sure-footed, using the strength he provides to share with people the gospel of Jesus. I've been so encouraged how I've heard some of you doing just that. One of you sent me an email this week. In it, you described the way you were using the Lord's strength to serve him. Instead of being fearful and shrinking back, instead this person is moving forward, even to minister to those who need the gospel desperately. This is what the email read at one point. God knows what he wants to do with my life, and it's his to do so. My job is to be responsible with what I know and selfless about who I know. Selfless about who I know. Brothers and sisters, we likely have a difficult week, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four in front of us. There will be much death, much bad news. People will be wondering, is there any hope in the midst of it? What would happen if we lived with such transparent joy and strength that people couldn't ask, couldn't help but wonder, what in the world is their God like that they can live like that? Let's remember our God is present. He is powerful. He is the judge of all of us. He is the savior of his people. And he is the strength and joy for all who find their security in him. Let's pray.